0: Section 3 of The Outline of Science, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephanie Lee. The Outline of Science by J. Arthur Thompson. Section 3 Interrelations of Living Creatures. Part 1 The Balance of Nature. The Weird Ways of Parasites many naturalists have had the vision of the web of life but none so vividly as darwin it was central in his picture of animate nature by the web of life we mean that no creature lives or dies to itself that each life is linked to other lives often in obscure and unsuspected ways everything as the philosopher locke put it is a retainer to other parts of the vast system of nature balance of nature we have seen that green plants feed on air water, and dissolved salts, that by utilizing the energy of the sunlight they are able in the laboratory of the leaf to build these up into compounds, and that on these products all animal life depends, either directly in the case of vegetarian animals or indirectly in the case of carnivores. There is a deep biological sense in which all flesh is grass. This is one aspect of the balance of nature, that there must be sufficient vegetable materials in an area to keep the animals a-going. Another aspect of the balance of nature has to do with oxygen and carbon dioxide. Few people realize that the bulk of the oxygen in our atmosphere has been formed by green plants, which in the daylight are always splitting up carbonic acid gas and liberating oxygen into the air. This oxygen is used by animals, and by plants as well, for keeping up the oxidation or combustion of carbon compounds which living always implies. Nutritive linkages the system of animate nature involves nutritive chains one creature being dependent upon another for sustenance animals eat plants or other animals or in some cases what plants and animals have made e g fallen leaves and stored honey in any case there is a continual circulation of matter from one embodiment to another there is an endless cycle of incarnations the codfish eats the whelk the whelk devours marine's worms worms feed on the sea dust meaning by that the microscopic organisms that swarm in the waters a cartload of bracken is tumbled into a lock it is acted on by bacteria which break it down into particles and simpler substances on these and on the bacteria themselves myriads of infusorians feed these in turn are devoured by small crustaceans and these are devoured by trout it is very important for practical purposes to discover these nutritive chains the most insignificant plants and animals often play an important part in the economy of nature, or what we call the balance of life. Thus earthworms may seem to form a despicable link in the chain of nature, yet they are all important. Vegetation would fare ill without them. How well Gilbert White, 1777, appreciated their importance. Earthworms, though in appearance a small and despicable link in the chain of nature, yet if lost, would make a lamentable chasm worms seemed to be the great promoters of vegetation which would proceed but lamely without them by boring perforating and loosening the soil and rendering it pervious to rains and the fibres of plants by drawing straws and stalks into the soil and most of all by throwing up such infinite numbers of lumps of earth the earth without worms would soon become cold hard bound and void of fermentation and consequently sterile when he was a young student in edinburgh charles darwin began studying the work of earthworms counting the num-solvent humus acids of the soil down to the buried surface their castings on the hill slopes are carried down by wind and rain and go to swell the alluvium of the distant valleys linkages securing survival the most important linkage in the world is that between many flowering plants and their insect visitors as we have seen see botany The insects carry the fertilizing pollen from one blossom to another, and bring about not merely fertilization but cross-fertilization, which increases the yield and the quality of the seed. Unless the egg cell, inside the ovule inside the ovary of the flower, be fertilized by a male nucleus from the pollen grain, the possible seed will not become a real seed capable of development or germination. Some flowers, like peas, are self-pollinating. In some other cases, like pine trees, the pollen is carried by the wind, but most flowers are cross-pollinated by insects, and it has been proved experimentally that cross-pollination is best. Cats and Clover In illustrating the linkage between flowers and their welcome insect visitors, for there are others that do nothing but harm, Darwin told the cats and clover story, which soon spread round the world. Round a hundred heads of the purple clover he put muslin bags, so that air got in and sunlight got in, but no insects. From these hundred heads he got not a single real seed, while from another hundred heads without muslin bags he obtained twenty-seven thousand seeds. These heads have been visited by the humble bee, which affects cross-fertilization. So the more humble bees, the better next year's clover crop. But the nests of the humble bees are rifled by the field mice or voles, which are fond of the delicate white grubs. Therefore, the more field mice, the fewer humble bees, and the poorer next year's clover crop. But in the neighborhood of villages there are fewer field-mice than in the open country, for the cats hunt them down, killing them though they do not eat them. Therefore the more cats, the fewer field-mice, and the fewer field-mice the more humble-bees, and the more humble-bees the better next year's clover-crop. It is easy to extend these house-that-Jack-built stories. The more clover, the richer the pasture for the cattle, and the more roast-beef for John Bull. The more kindly old ladies there are in the village, the more cats there will be and this again will favour the clover. Thus cats and clover and cattle are linked together. It has been stated that in some instances the purple clover has seeded satisfactorily in the absence of humble bees. This may be due to the occurrence of self-pollination, or to the visits of some other insect which fills the humble bee's role as pollinator, but the main fact is well illustrated in the case of a country like New Zealand. The case of red clover. When the farmers there first tried to cultivate the purple or red clover, it failed to produce seeds, for there were no humble bees in the islands. Bees were introduced and they multiplied apace. The raising of clover seed became commercially profitable. A subsequent importation of American species of humble bees, with longer tongues readily able to reach far down into the floral tube, was followed by further improvement in the yield of clover seed. In one province, in nineteen twelve, an area of six hundred ten acres was sown with red clover and yielded an average of one hundred fifty-eight pounds to the acre distribution of seeds hardly less important than the pollination of flowers is the distribution of seeds and again we may begin with a classic case from darwin when birds get their feet wet clodlets of earth often form on them and these may include the seeds of plants and beside these small animals or their larval sages when the bird gets its feet washed cleaned at some other place the seeds are liberated from the clodlets and thus there is scattering of seeds many facts darwin writes could be given showing how generally soil is charged with seeds for instance professor newton sent me the leg of a red-legged partridge rufa, which had been wounded and could not fly with a ball of hard earth adhering to it and weighing six and a half ounces the earth had been kept for three years but when broken, watered and placed under a bell-glass, no less than eighty-two plants sprung from it. These consisted of twelve monocotyledons, including the common oat, and at least one kind of grass, and of seventy dicotyledons, which consisted, judging from the young leaves, of at least three distinct species. When a bird is killed and rots away on the earth, or is buried by sexton beetles, the undigested seeds in its crop may, similarly, be sown far from where they were gathered. Ants and seeds. Ants are particularly fond of seeds which have oil bodies or food bodies on their coats, e.g. violet, bluebell, mignonette, and fumatory. In some cases they eat only the external food body, so that the seeds thrown out from the ants' nest may still germinate. Moreover, in many cases the seeds are lost by the ants as they are carrying them home. Professor F. E. Weiss placed the seeds of gorse and broom, which have very distinct food bodies, on the ants' tracks and found that they were soon picked up while the seeds of various other plants were left alone it is reasonable therefore to conclude that ants assist in the distribution of gorse and broom freshwater mussels and minnows another example of the way in which one creature depends on another for the continuance of its kind may be found in the linkage between freshwater mussels and minnows the eggs of the freshwater mussel are produced about midsummer in britain but they are not set free. They develop in a special brood-chamber the cavity of the basketwork like outer gill. They turn into pet-head bivalve larvae, called glochidia, which are not allowed to escape till early in the following year. Moreover, they are not liberated unless a fish, such as a minnow, comes swimming slowly past. When the larvae are set free, they swim in the water clapping their valves together, exuding delicate gluey threads, and making for the fish. Some lucky ones get attached to the minnow and burrow a little into the flesh. Here they undergo a great change and eventually drop off into the mud, often far from where they were born. It is very striking to find that a continental fish, the bitterling, rhodius amarus, uses a long egg-laying tube to inject its eggs into the freshwater mussel. The eggs develop in the mussel's gill chamber, and the larval bitterlings spend some time there before they find their way out. So the freshwater mussel is dependent on some fish, and the bitterling is dependent on the freshwater mussel. This is what is meant by the linkage, and scores of striking instances will be found in books that deal with life histories. One creature on another. It often happens, especially in a crowded area such as the seashore, that one animal settles down on the back of another, as rock barnacles on a crab shell or a tube-inhabiting worm on a bucky this mode of life is called epizoic and it may be adopted by plants as well as by animals thus seaweeds are often attached to crabs and even to aged lobsters and a green alga grows on the shaggy hair of the tree sloth it may be an advantage to the epizoic animals or plants to be carried about by an active bearer to the bearer it is probably in some cases a burden but is often quite indifferent occasionally as has been noticed in the article on disguise it has a camouflaging utility There is a vivacious plover that lives in an interesting partnership with the crocodile, as Herodotus reported long ago. Observant, inquisitive, excitable, clamorous, and gifted with a far-reaching voice, it is well fitted to serve as watchman to all less careful creatures. No approach, whether of beast, of prey, or of man, escapes its suspicious observation. Every sailing boat or rowing boat on the river attracts its attention, and it never fails to tell of its discovery in loud cries this sentinel is at home on the sandbanks on the nile where the crocodiles are wont to rest it often perches on the reptile's back from which it picks leeches and it will even jerk a morsel of food from between the teeth dr leith adams writes that the egyptians of to-day have put a tale to the account that herodotus gave of the partnership they say that in addition to its office of leech-catcher to the crocodile it occasionally does happen that the zigzag, so called for its note of alarm in searching for the leeches finds its way into the reptile's mouth when the latter is basking on a sandbank where it lies generally with the jaws wide open now this is possible and likely enough but the captain of our boat added that occasionally the crocodile falls asleep when the jaws suddenly fall and the zigzag is shut up in the mouth when it immediately prods the crocodile with its horny spurs as if refreshing the memory of his reptilian majesty who opens his jaws and sets his favorite leech-catcher at liberty there seems to be two of these crocodile birds, both plovers, the black headed pluvianus Egyptius and the spur winged hoplopterus dinosius. This case must serve an illustration of partnership, but we may mention the small horse mackerels that sometimes swim about under the shelter of a big jellyfish's umbrella, the beef eater birds that perch on cattle and clean their hide, and the pilot fish that accompanies the shark. There is nothing hard and fast in our grouping of these associations, and what we have called partnership passes insensibly into something more definite. Thus, the little tiny pea crab often lives within the horse muscle, finding shelter and apparently food as well. It is naturally difficult to draw a firm line where shelter stops, and some sort of cooperation begins. There is a brilliant Indian ocean fish about two inches long, called amphiprion that lives in association with a large reef anemone. Discosoma. It lives among the tentacles of the anemone and retires into the food cavity on the slightest alarm. It dies when it is removed from the sea anemone. As Mr. Banfield says in his delightful My Tropic Isle, 1910, it is almost as elusive as a sunbeam and most difficult to catch, for if the anemone is disturbed it contracts its folds and shrinks away, offering inviolable sanctuary. The benefit to the little fish is plain enough. It finds shelter in crumbs. But is there any benefit on the other side? Many sea anemones are in the habit of stinging and seizing small fishes which intrude inquisitively or incautiously. But Discosoma does not seem to do this to amphiprion. It has been suggested that the brilliantly colored fish serves as a lure. It seems more likely that the movements of the fish in and about the sea anemone keep up useful currents of water. Commensalism. In a previous section reference has been made to an external partnership mutually beneficial, between two quite different kinds of animals, which is usually spoken of as commensalism, meaning eating at the same table, con together and mensa a table. The word is almost the same as companionship, eating the same bread. Fine instances are found in the associations between hermit crabs and sea anemones. Certain kinds of hermit crabs place sea anemones on the back of the bucky or other shells, which they have commandeered for the shelter of their flabby tails. There may be three or more sea anemones on the top of a big shell. The advantages to the hermit crab are that the anemones mask its real nature and that they can sting. In certain crabs the sea anemones actually fix on each of the great claws, as if the crustacean made a weapon of the polyp. The advantages to the sea anemones are that they are carried about and that they get morsels from the hermit crab's meals, which are many. In this mutually beneficial partnership there are several points of much interest. Thus a hermit crab deprived of its partner was seen to stalk about restlessly, ill at ease, until it obtained another of the same kind. When a hermit crab has grown too large for its borrowed shell it has to flit. This means leaving the sea anemones behind, but the hermit crab has been seen removing them from the relinquished shell and establishing them on the new one. A sea anemone removed from its partner was seen, after a while, to fasten itself to the leg of a passing hermit crab, and gradually move on to the top of the shell in certain cases the sea anemone is never seen apart from the hermit crab and vice versa getting away from marine animals we may notice that associations which may be called commensalism are well known among insects thus mr william beebe has recently discovered a minute blind cockroach attaphila that lives in the subterranean nests of the atta leafcutter ants they clean the bodies of the giant soldier ants and seem to do no harm in the nest We need not refer to other instances of commensalism which have been mentioned elsewhere in this work. We have also had occasion to refer to examples of symbiosis. Symbiosis The term symbiosis, which simply means living together, syn, together, and bios, life, has been earmarked for mutually beneficial internal partnerships between two organisms of different kinds. Thus a green alga lives inside the little marine worm called convoluta, and makes a worm a sort of plant animal in a very successful association it is the double life of lichens it was the great botanist de barry who first applied the term symbiosis to the partnership illustrated by those strange encrusting plants called lichens which are so familiar on trees and rocks they are even stranger than they look for they are double plants as we have seen see page six ten it is impossible not to be interested in lichens pioneers in soil-making, sheltering, and feeding those animals that are the outposts of life's ceaseless campaign, but it is not their supreme interest that they represent a very distinctive adventure in evolution, the adventure of symbiosis. The seamy side of heather. Everyone knows that heather grows well on poor and unpromising soil where relatively few other plants will thrive. The water of the moorland is apt to be in such an acid state that the roots of plants cannot use it, The nitrogenous supplies in the soil are unavailable because bacteria do not flourish in peaty environment. The same is true of earthworms, which make soil elsewhere. What, then, is the heather's secret? For it certainly thrives on mountain and moorland. It has a partner fungus that sends its threads or hyphae not only into the cells of the root, but through and through the stem and leaves, and even into the seed box. The fungus acts as the intermediary between the heather and the soil. It absorbs water and organic material it is perhaps able in some measure to fix atmospheric nitrogen in any case the heather has been able to effect a compromise with what was probably to start with a predatory intruder indeed the compromise has gone so far that the heather cannot thrive without its partner as dr rayner says the heathers have solved the problem of growth on poor and unpromising soils but solved it at the price of their independence the infection of the heather seems to take place shortly after the germination of the seeds, and it is a remarkable fact that the seedlings do not develop roots in a pure sterilized culture where there is no partner fungus. But infection with the right fungus brings about normal development. The heather's health and continuance depend on its symbiosis with the fungus. More information in regard to these partnerships will be found in the article on botany. End of section three.